We're looking at two passages, the end of Isaiah 59 and the beginning of Isaiah 63. Uh, These two passages form bookends uh, around uh, a section in which we look at the New Jerusalem, the glory of Zion. Uh, And as you'll see, they provide an interesting uh, context for all of this. So firstly, Isaiah uh, 59 from halfway through verse 15. So you'll find that on the top of page 1157. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm achieved salvation for him, and his own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as his breastplate, and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance, and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. According to what they have done, so he will repay wrath to his enemies, and retribution to his foes. He will repay the islands their due. From the west, people will fear the name of the Lord. And from the rising of the sun, they will revere his glory. For he will come like a pent-up flood that the breath of the Lord drives along. The Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who repent of their sins, declares the Lord. As for me... This is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit who is on you will not depart from you. And my words that I have put in your mouth will always be on your lips and on the lips of your children and on the lips of their descendants. From this time on and forever, says the Lord. If you'd like to flip over a few pages to 1162. And the first part of chapter 63. Who is this coming from Edom and from Bozrah with his garments stained crimson? Who is this robed in splendor, striding forth in the greatness of his strength? It is I proclaiming victory, mighty to save. Why are your garments red like those of one treading the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone. From the nations, no one was with me. I trampled them in my anger, and I trod them down in my wrath. Their blood spattered on my garments, and I stained all my clothing. It was for me the day of vengeance. The year for me to redeem had come. I looked But there was no one to help. I was appalled that no one gave support. So my own arm achieved salvation for me. And my own wrath sustained me. I trampled the nations in anger. In my wrath I made them drunk and poured their blood out on the ground. Please pray with me. Gracious Father, our God of love, 
these harsh words seem remote. In some ways they seem paradoxical to us. Uh, We struggle. We struggle to understand. So we do pray that you would teach us tonight. That by your spirit and through your word, you would enable us to get a clearer picture of who you are, why you do what you do, and your amazing grace that you display. Father, please teach us now, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What makes you furious? Not just angry, but furious. Does the Holocaust make you furious? Six million Jews ruthlessly disposed of and others being treated as subhuman. Does that infuriate you? None of us experience that. And for all of us here, it was not in our lifetime. So what about the genocide in Rwanda in 1994? 70% of the Tutsi population exterminated in 100 days. Many more of us were alive then. Did that, does that make you furious? I guess it's still too distant, isn't it? Maybe the number of child abuse cases that have been uncovered. Does that make you furious? The Morpheus lived with a victim of child sexual abuse for 16 years. Yet that didn't make me furious. It just saddened me. Perhaps like me, you'd say, I don't do furious. I do angry, but I don't do furious. Okay, if you are like me in that, what would make you furious? What would make you furious? If you saw your own child abused before your very eyes? I think unless it becomes extremely personal, it's hard to get furious. Why is that? Well, I think for me, it's because I'm so wrapped up in my own kingdom, my my own agenda, that I find that I don't have as much concern for others as I should. Oh yes, I pray your kingdom come, and and I believe it will, and, and... But I think the reality is that we all, to a greater or lesser degree, are unable to look too much beyond ourselves. Seldom would our sin make us furious. I can't think of a single time when my sin has made me furious. Today we look at the wrath of God. Why is God so furious, so wrathful? He did see his child abused before his own eyes. God has seen all the episodes of genocide, 
each blatant slaying, each child abuse, every dehumanising act, every aborted child, every sin through the centuries. And each of these has not only been taken as a, a personal affront of his, his precious creation, but a personal assault on his character. If we kept reading in uh, chapter 63 for a few verses, when we got to verse 9, we would have read these words. In their distress, he too was distressed. In their distress, he too was distressed. Why is God so wrathful? Because he is so compassionate, so empathetic, so loving. If God was not infuriated by sin, sin would just roll on unrelentingly. Praise God for his wrath. Towards the end of chapter 59, we see God's response to injustice. Here God is seen as a sovereign conqueror. God is displeased and appalled. He is displeased by the absence of righteousness. And the absence of anyone to do anything about it is what appalls him. So he will do what is needed himself. God commits himself to bring a salvation founded on his own righteousness. There is no justice, so he comes to bring justice. And he will bring justice even for those we saw praying last week in Isaiah 58, those who are praying for justice but acting unjustly. They will receive justice, but they will not like it. Who is this sovereign conqueror? How is he described in these two passages? Well, just briefly, he's described as a regal figure. He is robed in splendour. Yet his garments are stained crimson. Uh, This person who comes proclaiming victory is the Lord Almighty. Uh, It is I, or alternatively, I am. I am mighty to save. The I am of the burning bush. He is a righteous saviour. He puts on righteousness as his breastplate, salvation as his helmet. And he puts zeal on as a cloak. He's zealous for righteousness. He is the Redeemer. Only this Redeemer can truly save. And the time is right for redemption. The year for me to redeem has come, he declares. He is also spirit-filled and truthful. He is the arm of the Lord. And we've seen previously uh, the servant as the arm of the Lord. So if we step back and say, who is this? Well, this is the Trinity at work to bring a final resolution to the problem of sin. 
We know that the servant has already provided righteousness for many. We know that from Isaiah 53 verse 11. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By the knowledge of him, my righteous servant, many will be justified. And he will bear their iniquities. But what about the ongoing sin? What about those who have rejected God's servant and his gracious salvation? What what about them? Oh, sorry. I left out one of the characteristics of this sovereign conqueror. He is wrathful. He is wrathful. My anger, my wrath. My anger, my wrath. My anger, my wrath. Why is this necessary? What has he come to do? Well, this continuing rebellion after the servant's appearance means there has to be a final climax, a showdown, if you like, a showdown where the servant's victory would be applied to all his foes in final judgment. And with it, the inevitable destruction of all evil. In short, he comes to wipe out injustice and establish his own righteous justice forever. And this will involve repaying wrath to his enemies. So is justice what we really want and need? Is justice what we really want and need? We know that God's wrath was poured out upon his son at Golgotha. If people reject his sacrifice, his offer of grace, his offer of complete forgiveness and renewal, then they will have to bear God's wrath themselves. God will trample them in anger, in wrath, in righteousness. There is nothing unjust about this. Nothing unjust about this. This is giving justice to those who reject grace. To those who want justice and not grace, they get an ugly justice. If there is no anger against sin, then there is no need for judgment but ultimately no true justice. There is no true justice without wrath. Such is the enormous affront of humankind's sin to God. There is something else that the sovereign conqueror is coming to do. We see in both chapters 59 and 63 these words my own arm my own arm and we've heard references to the arm of the Lord over several weeks let me take you back to the first one 
that we looked at in Isaiah 40, verses 10 and 11. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him and his recompense. His reward and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. This strong arm brings wrath and redemption. There will be judgment and salvation. This same arm will gather his sheep and hold them close to his heart. He is both judge and protector. On that final judgment day, not one of his flock will be lost. If you are trusting Jesus' death and resurrection, if you are trusting his righteousness and not your own, you are already embraced by the strong arm. That strong arm is holding you close. In Isaiah 59.20, we see another often repeated word and, and a key here. So in 59.20, the Redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who repent of their sins, declares the Lord. Repentance is a mark of membership to the flock. Turning from sin to God. Turning from self to God. Dying to self. Repentance is a key. Daily repentance. Daily turning to those welcoming arms. What will God's wrath look like for you who trust Jesus? What will God's wrath look like on that day? You will never know. You will never know. Fear him now and you have nothing to fear. Why does he do it? There are three reasons why God promises to come in wrath. Firstly, because there is no other remedy. No person can remedy this situation, this sin problem. God looks and there is no one to intervene. I looked, but there was no help. Because we are all tarnished with sin. Because we are all wanderers at heart. And we cannot do what is needed. We all fall short. We all need a rescuer, a redeemer. If God had enacted in Jesus, we would have to confront God's wrath. And we would be unable to withstand it. Why does God promise to come in wrath? To ensure the total destruction of evil. This is what we want. We want all wrongs to be put right and for this to take place, there has to be a reckoning. If we want justice, there has to be a reckoning, a tallying, an accounting, a payment. And if we reject the payment that has been made, 
we have to pay it ourselves. Why does God promise to come in wrath? To guarantee an eternal, an eternal redemption. Not partial, but total, forever. The renewal of all things. If we really do want things to be perfected, there is no other way. There is a final question here. A question that was asked of Jesus in his day and a a question asked most days since. When does God come in his wrath? When will this coming be? Well, the answer is he has come and he will come. God has poured out his wrath upon Jesus on the cross and he will come at some future time. The Gospels suggest that the time is only known to the Father. It will be unexpected. It will come on an unexpected day because it will be a day just like today. It'll be a day when people are eating and drinking and marrying. It will be unexpected. But an ordinary day. Much of Revelation speaks of this future coming wrath, this final judgment. Here are a few verses from chapter 6. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand it? Even at this last day, even in this last day, people are crying out to the the creation to save them instead of the creator. It's a bit hard, isn't it, to envisage a wrathful lamb. But this isn't Jesus meek and mild. This isn't gentle Jesus. Those who hid their faces from him at the cross, those who have turned from him since, will again seek to hide. As there was no hiding in the garden in the beginning of the Bible... There is no hiding at the end. The wrathful lamb will take the the wrath that was placed on him on the cross and he will inflict it upon all those who want justice but have shunned grace. Those who want to compare their righteousness credentials with the righteous one will be horrified. They will not stand. This day is certain to come. For the Lord God has spoken it. It is certain to come. For now, God is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to turn to him, everyone to come in repentance. For now, but not forever. So what about us? 
Well, firstly and most importantly, we need to know where we stand with this wrathful, redeeming God. Have you been shielded from the coming wrath by turning to God, trusting his son, accepting his gracious gift? In other words, have you acknowledged your sin, your inability to do anything about it, and cast yourself on this this conquering saviour? If you're unsure of this, you need to talk to someone. You need to talk to me soon. If you know that Jesus has died in your place and has risen to give you new life, we need to look again at chapter 59, verse 21. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit, who is on you, will not depart from you. And my words that I put in your mouth will always be on your lips, on the lips of your children and on the lips of their descendants, from this time on and forever. Two magnificent promises. We have been endowed with the Holy Spirit. We've been endowed with the living breath of God. Not only is God with us, but he is in us, changing us to be more like his son. And secondly, God has placed his words in us. He has given us good news. He's given us a gospel uh, to share with each other, like we're doing this evening, and to declare to a needy, waiting world. You feel weak about doing that? So did Peter, the uneducated fisherman. Yet with the spirit in him and the words on his lips, he was able to declare that to thousands on that day of Pentecost and many others in the days to come. This is God's work and God will equip us to speak into the lives of others, to speak his, his love, his glory and his grace. Praise God for his wrath because it re- reveals the full extent of his love and grace. Grasp grace. Don't stick out for justice. You won't like it. Let's pray. Loving Father, we do thank you that in your wisdom, in your majesty, in your love and grace, you have made a way for us and for all people. Father, we praise you. Father, please give us a heart for those who are at the moment rejecting your grace and clamouring after justice. Please, Father, help us to show you to them. Father, please speak through us 
your church here in Abbotsford and everywhere so that many might come to know and love the Lord Jesus to your honour and glory and praise. Amen.